story is told of a mother who was driving her young son to school one day named Johnny, and uh, Johnny was standing in the seat beside her. Uh, these must have been the, uh, the good old days before parents wrapped their kids in one-inch thick bubble wrap before they went out to get in the car somewhere. Anyways, the, the mom noticed Johnny standing up in the car, and she said, sit down, dear. I may have to stop suddenly, and you'll be thrown against the windshield. No, Johnny refused. Please sit down, dear. I don't want you to get hurt. No, came Johnny's reply. Please, came the mom's final appeal, to which Johnny replied, see if you can guess it, no. Finally, the frustrated mom reached over and pulled Johnny down and grabbed the seatbelt and buckled him in. He sat there sullenly for a moment, and then he said to his mom, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. I think that story helpfully demonstrates the difference between outward conformity and inward change. The, the mom got what she wanted, didn't she? The little boy's body was sitting down. He was outwardly conformed to his mother's will. And yet, even though his body was changed on the outside, there was nothing changed on the inside. His heart remained unmoved, rebellious, and disobedient. He was inwardly unchanged. How often do you and I do the same thing? It's one thing to behave differently on the outside, especially if we feel like we must outwardly conform. With the right motivation, Christians in this room and all over the world just might turn the other cheek when slapped or give away a cloak when you're sued for your tunic or give to the one who asks of you or go an extra mile for the one who forces you to go with him one. Given the right motivation, every single one of us just might outwardly conform in all of these things. But Jesus demands more. Jesus demands not only outward conformity, but inward change. If you were with us last Sunday in Matthew chapter 5, we examined how Jesus requires us to respond when we're mistreated. We are to turn the other cheek, give the cloak to the one who sues for the tunic, give to the one who asks us, go the extra mile, and so on and so forth. He tells us, here's some ways we're supposed to respond when we're mistreated. But that's not all that Jesus demands of you, Christian. Jesus demands inward change. If you're not already there, direct your attention in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Uh, we are in the middle of a sermon that Jesus preached to his disciples towards the beginning of his ministry. And at this part of the sermon, Jesus is contrasting the righteousness, the apparent righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the religious leaders with the actual righteousness that should characterize his followers. 
He's contrasting fake righteousness, phony righteousness, religious righteousness with the real righteousness that should be true of everyone that claims to be a follower of Jesus. Six times he says, you've heard this, but I tell you this, and goes on to show you what it means to actually have real righteousness. And this morning we come upon the final of those six contrasts. And this one, perhaps more than any other, demands something from us that might appear to be impossible. Here, Jesus demands that we not only respond or behave in a certain way when we're mistreated. Jesus demands that we feel something, that we love even our enemies. Hearts that Jesus changes don't stop at outward kindness towards those who mistreat us. A heart changed by Jesus will lead to inward change in how we feel towards those who mistreat us. I want to show you with God's help today four truths that with the Spirit's help can prepare a renewed heart to love even an enemy. Number one, I want you to notice in the text a harsh reality. A harsh reality. Look at verse 43 in your Bibles. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Once again, as we've seen over and over again through this section of the sermon, Jesus is dealing with a perversion of the Old Testament law. So the Old Testament is quite clear that we are supposed to love our neighbor. That's throughout the Old Testament. One place is Leviticus chapter 19. It says in verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Much later in the gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 22, someone's going to come up to Jesus and he's going to ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? You remember, Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. It's what? To love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus goes to that commandment in Leviticus 19. He says, that's the second greatest commandment in the Old Testament. So the commandment to love your neighbor was there. The question in Jesus' day, the debate was, who is my neighbor? And you remember Jesus famously answered and responded to that misunderstanding in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But because the Jewish people believed that they only had to love their countrymen, they thought that they were justified in hating their enemies. But the Old Testament law has no such command. Now, today, let's bring this to our neighborhood for just a second. I don't think most of us really have a hard time intellectually grasping with a command to love our enemies. I think, you know, we're so influenced by the Christian tradition and the Christian worldview that, that we, even if it's practically hard, we, we instinctively know we're not supposed to hate anybody, right? We're supposed to love. The harsh reality then for us is that we have enemies because the truth is many of us 
if we're honest, you're thinking like, I don't really have any, any enemies. Uh, there's a, a scene in the BBC television show, Sherlock, and uh, Dr. John Watson is talking to his friend, the great detective Sherlock Holmes, and Sherlock is telling him, you got to watch out for so-and-so, he's my arch enemy. And Dr. Watson says, people don't have arch enemies. There are no arch enemies in real life. I think that pretty well characterizes the way many of us think. We don't really have enemies. We're safe here in the United States. People might have enemies in Ukraine. Maybe they have enemies in Afghanistan, but not here. We don't really have enemies, especially here on a Sunday morning in church. We, you know, we're fine. We don't have enemies. Let me ask you a question. Why is it that we think that way? Why is it that we think we don't have any enemies? A couple of weeks ago, the elders uh, had a Zoom conversation with one of our missionaries in Belgium named Justin Ham. Many of you know Justin. We had a good conversation with Justin, had some time in prayer for him. And as we're talking, he, he, he shared with us how, uh, how involved his church was and their community. And he says, you know what? It's really hard because every single time we're in our community, we're called idiots or worse for following Jesus. And it occurred to me as I'm listening, is that why I don't have any enemies? Is the problem that I'm not around unbelievers enough? Now, many of you are around unbelievers for your job, so you're hanging around with unbelievers every single day. I work at a church. Anybody that's an unbeliever that I work with is, is hiding something, right? Now, we're all good Christians here. I don't hang out with unbelievers a lot. And it occurred to me, perhaps the reason why maybe some of you, and, and perhaps for sure me, feel like I don't really have any enemies is because we're isolated. We're not around people that disagree with us. We're not near them. We might see them on Twitter, but we're not really near them personally. Perhaps for others of you, the problem is a different one, not isolation, but assimilation. Uh, to assimilate is to look so much like the unbelieving world around you that they can't really tell a difference. Therefore, they have no reason to view you as an enemy because you look and think and talk and act just like them. Could it be that you don't have any enemies because you don't live in such a way that the unbelieving world around you has anything to oppose? Is that you? Are you blending in? with the lost world around you? Are you hiding the most controversial things that you believe, things that would cause the world around you to mistreat you? If any of these things are yes for you, then what does it look like for you to live publicly as a follower of Jesus in a world that hates him? What will that look like for you, Christian? If you find yourself like Dr. Watson, empty of enemies... Is the problem perhaps that you have isolated yourself from the world or assimilated to the world? 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You will be hated, Jesus said. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. 
So before we can begin to, to reckon with, love the people that mistreat you. Perhaps this command will be a little bit easier if we understand what Jesus means, easier to understand if we understand what Jesus means by enemy. Look with me at verse 44. But I say to you, in two different ways, they're called enemies, the first part of the verse, and they're called those who persecute you in the second part of the verse. Those two ways of describing this group of people help us to understand what an enemy is. An enemy is somebody who tries to persecute you because you belong to Jesus. So when we're talking about loving your enemies, I'm not first and foremost saying that you should love Russia or Vladimir Putin, although you should. I'm first and foremost talking about those who would choose to mistreat you and persecute you because you belong to Christ. That's what Jesus means by enemy. Do you love those people? Now, you might, again, you might be tempted to say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not really persecuted. We tend to think of persecution as hard persecution, when I talk about hard persecution, I mean something like being imprisoned or, or being tortured or being martyred for the sake of the gospel. That's hard persecution. And that's a real reality for our family in many places of the world. There are Christians that face severe persecution for calling upon the name of Jesus. That's a real thing. Christian, you might never face it. But you have family that are facing it today. Hard persecution. But that's not the only type of persecution that Christians face. Christians also face what we could call soft persecution. Not because it's easy, but because it's softer than hard. Okay? So soft persecution, um, Jesus is, he, he actually tells us about it in Matthew chapter 5. If you go to the left a little bit in your Bible, to verses 10 and 11, you'll see it described there. The end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, they're calling you names. They're reviling you. They're saying you're bigoted or on the wrong side of history or uh, you're phobic of some sort. They're mistreating you with their words. That is, according to Christ, a form of persecution. And Jesus says, you're blessed when you endure it. But he says in our text this morning, when you are mistreated by people in that way, your response is not merely to say, praise God, I'm being persecuted for his namesake, but also to love the one doing the persecuting. Not to respond in kind with an equal volley but to feel love towards them. Stephen, in the book of Acts, demonstrates this. As people are lobbing stones at his head to put him to death after preaching a sermon saying Jesus is Lord. Do you remember what Stephen did as they're putting him to death? He did the exact same thing that Christ did at the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He forgave them. He prayed for them. A second century pastor named Polycarp was imprisoned for his beliefs about Christ. And when his captors came to take him to the execution, the story goes that he welcomed them with joy. Why? Because he loved even 
his enemies. A 15th century reformer named John Huss, who predated Luther by about 100 years, as he is being burned at the stake for his so-called or there was Elizabeth Elliot. If you know her story about her husband and others being put to death by the Alca Indians in Ecuador. And Elizabeth Elliot chooses after the death of her husband to go back to the murderers of her husband, to those who made her a widow, and love them to Jesus. This is the mark of a Christian. But this is not a natural response. You ever had somebody criticize you? What's your first response? If you're like me, I'm going to criticize you back. Right? Last week we learned we're not allowed to do that. So I'm going to criticize in my heart. And I'm going to be kind in return. But Jesus says, no. You will instead, if you're my follower, if you would be righteous, you will instead love them. Love them. And the example that Jesus gives us of how we should love our enemies is to pray, right? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Now, you might feel like, well, all I have to do is pray for them. That's not a big deal. And you find one of those imprecatory Psalms, you know, the Lord bring me vengeance against my enemies. I did it. Okay, I'm done. The prayer for your enemies that Jesus describes here is a lot harder than you think it is. John Piper puts it this way. Prayer for your enemies is one of the deepest forms of love because it means that you have to really want that something good happen to them. You might do nice things for your enemy without any genuine desire that things go well with them. But prayer for them is in the presence of God who knows your heart. And prayer is interceding with God on their behalf. It may be for their conversion. It may be for their repentance. It may be that they would be awakened to the enmity in their hearts. It may be that they will be stopped in their downward spiral of sin, even if it takes disease or calamity to do it. But the prayer Jesus has in mind here is always for their good. Jesus is calling us not to just do good things for our enemy, like greeting them and helping supply their needs. He is calling us to want their best and to express those wants in prayers when the enemy is nowhere around, end quote. You wrestle with how hard that is? To love your enemy, Christian, the way that Jesus describes here is to want God to do what's best for them in your heart of hearts between you and God alone. It's easy, relatively easy to turn the other cheek. It's relatively easy to go a second mile. This is loving your enemy 
as an image bearer of God and praying for God to bless him or her. If you've ever had anybody oppose you, Christian, for any reason, this is incredibly hard. And I want to suggest to you, you cannot love like this unless you have been born again. Unless your heart has been made new by the work of the Spirit, this type of love is impossible. The best you can do is be like Johnny and sit down on the outside but stand up on the inside. Be kind on the outside but hate on the inside. That's the best you can do when you're really faced with enemies like this. But the type of love that Jesus demands is to want their best genuinely in your heart when you stand before God and you alone. That's what it means to love your enemies. Again, we said this last week, but let me just pause for a second and say we have got to learn to do this even amongst each other. Most of us, I hope, would not consider another member of this church to be an enemy. Maybe we do sometimes, you know, a feisty members meeting or something like that. But hopefully, no. We understand we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We have got to love each other this way. To love each other enough that even when we feel opposed and criticized and condemned and beaten down and neglected and overlooked and all the things that we endure in a family, even when we feel that, our response is not merely to behave kindly, but to feel love. And let me just tell you, church, I'm not standing up here saying I've arrived. I'm saying this is really hard. And you cannot do this apart from the Spirit of God. This is a supernatural response. Number three, I want you to notice in the text a surprising reward. Look at the first part of verse 45. Jesus says, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Does that phrase strike you as odd? Some might come across a verse like this and say, aha, there's a contradiction in the Bible. You Protestants, you Christians say that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But here, Jesus says, you become a child of the Father by loving your enemies. Is that what the text is saying? Is this passage teaching us work, work salvation? I don't think so. I'm going to show you why. But another way to interpret Jesus' words in this verse is that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may demonstrate that you are sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. So in other words, Jesus is not saying that, that you love your enemies as the payment to be a child of God, but you love your enemies as evidence that you are a child of God. Let me show you a couple of reasons why I think that's what Jesus means. Go back in your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 16. 
Jesus says a little bit earlier in the sermon, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and glorify, give glory to your Father who, who is in heaven. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, when you let your light shine, God will become your Father, does he? He says he, what? He is your Father in heaven. So as we've said repeatedly throughout this sermon, Jesus is teaching, first and foremost, his disciples. He's talking to people who already are followers of Christ. He's talking to people that already are adopted into the family of God. That phrasing is repeated all throughout the sermon. If you go to chapter 6, in chapter 6 alone, Jesus says 12 times that God is your father. Not God might be your father or God will be your father if you fill in the blank. He says God is your father. So I take this passage to mean that when we love and pray for even our enemies, we demonstrate, we give evidence that we do belong to our father. I think that's what Jesus means. So Christian, if you are a child of God, your good works, like loving your enemies, aren't the root of God's love for you. They're the fruit of God's love for you. Loving your enemies isn't the payment that you make to become a child of God. It's the result that God works in you because you are a child of God. So again, back to verse 44. We could say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may demonstrate that you are sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, here's where we get to the reward. What's the reward for loving your enemies this way? If you will love your enemies the way that Jesus describes in this passage, you will find a heightened assurance that you belong to God. I wonder if there's anyone in this room that has ever doubted their salvation. I wonder if there's anyone in this room that has ever been in a revival service or a youth camp or a church service with an altar call and your preacher leads in some sort of a sinner's prayer and you do it just one more time just in case. Because if you're honest, you've gone through those times where you wonder, do I really belong to God? I really His. I remember hearing a preacher say years ago, if you're not 100% sure, you're 100% lost. In other words, his argument was that real Christians struggle with doubt. That is absolute nonsense and nowhere to be found in Scripture. In a few chapters, we're going to find that John the Baptist himself on his deathbed is doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. And we're going to watch Jesus gently, patiently care for his cousin John in his moment of doubt. So doubt is something that every Christian sometimes wrestles with. But the Christian who is not doubting is the Christian who has what we call assurance. So we sang last week, blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, 
purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. So, so here's the argument of what Jesus is saying in our text. One of the ways, not the only way, not even the most important way, but one of the ways that you can have assurance, confidence, faith that you genuinely belong to God is that you look like him. And if God loves his enemies, then so do you. Look at how God treats his enemies. Look at verse 45, for, uh, second half of verse 45. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Now, we think of rain often, if we're honest, as an annoying inconvenience. But in Jesus' day, it's not the way they thought about rain. Without rain, there's no harvest, there's no crops, there's no water. Rain was a blessing. And Jesus says, look at what your father does. He does not send rain to the good people. You know, you remember in the, in the Exodus story how some of the plagues affected the Egyptians and, and, and only the Egyptians and some of them didn't affect the Israelites at all? That's not how God is with rain. It's not like you can drive down the road and it's perfectly clear and then you see a dark cloud over someone's house. That's a good guy. We might be thinking, that's a bad guy, right? He's got rain. No, God in his incredible kindness blesses even his enemies. Listen to me, church. The most God-hating atheist cursing God till his final breath will still receive from God blessings and gifts even until the end of his life. Why? Because God loves even his enemies. By the way, Christian, if God didn't love his enemies, then none of you would belong to Jesus. Right? So here's what Jesus is saying. God, your father, is kind and, and feels love and shows grace even to his enemies. And if you love this way, you will bear God the Father's family resemblance. You'll begin to look like him. Look at verses 46 and 47. But some of you might be tempted to think, well, I'm nice to some people. I'm kind to people at church. I'm nice to my Christian friends. Doesn't that count? Listen to Jesus, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Everybody loves people that are nice to them. From the tycoons on Wall Street to the celebrities in Hollywood to the politicians on Capitol Hill, everybody loves people that are like them and nice to them. Jesus says Christians are different. Christians love even their enemies. If you belong to your heavenly father, you will slowly start to look like him. Now, I want, you to remember, I want you to remember, Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, you were not born a Christian. You were adopted into the family of God. When you repented and believed the gospel, you were adopted in. And sometimes adoptive families look a little different. Okay, so if, if, some, if, you, if somebody comes up to me, 
after the service and you say, man, your son Ezekiel looks so much like his daddy. I know you're lying. I know you're lying. Right? And so too, when you're adopted into the family of God, you don't look like the father right away. All right? It's going to take some time for God's image to kind of be pressed in, the image of Christ to be pressed into your heart. But over time, as you grow in the family of God, you should start looking more and more like him. In the same way, the more Ezekiel hangs out with his daddy, the more he's going to look like him in some ways. So if you see Ezekiel dance, you might say, oh yeah, he looks a lot like his dad. I kind of get the resemblance now. So too with you as an adopted child of God. As you grow in Christ, you will look more and more like him. And as you, in your heart, can begin to feel love, even towards those who mistreat you, you will find a renewed assurance that you could not do this unless God was the one working in you. That's what God does in the hearts of his children. I want you to notice one final truth from Jesus' teaching. An imputed righteousness. An imputed righteousness. That word imputed, we don't use a lot in everyday English, but it's an important theological term that means to credit to someone's account something that does not belong to them. I want you to look at verse 48. Jesus concludes this section of the sermon And he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. I want you to notice back in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5, this is where this section of the sermon begins. This section of the sermon with these six different contrasts is all about the, the difference between phony righteousness and real righteousness. Look at verse 20. It's the beginning of the section. Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then here at the conclusion of this section, he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This whole section has been about contrasting phony righteousness with real righteousness, outward conformity with heart change. And Jesus comes along at the conclusion of this part of the sermon, and he says, listen, if you want to be like your Father in heaven, you have to be perfect. You must be perfect as he is perfect. Do you feel the weight of that, Christian? You should. This should feel like a heavy burden. Like, how am I going to do this? Hopefully you, if we've preached it faithfully, hopefully you felt that in the last five sermons. Man, how am I supposed to not commit murder in my heart? Adultery in my heart. How am I supposed to be a truth teller like that? How am I supposed to respond like that when I'm mistreated? You ought to feel the weight of this. How in the world are we supposed to live like this? And what is the point of Jesus coming along later in Matthew's gospel in saying that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? This doesn't feel easy. This feels hard. This doesn't feel light, it feels 
heavy. This can only make sense if you understand the doctrine of imputation. Imputation. In a podcast called Simply Put, a theologian named Barry Cooper explains and illustrates imputation this way. Now listen to this. Imagine one day you switch on the TV and you see a news report about the royal family and your jaw drops because the prince has married a prostitute. And the camera cuts to footage of her. She's been living on the streets. She's dealing with a mountain of unpaid debt. She's homeless. She's filthy. She's emaciated with hunger. Her lips are chapped with thirst. She's clearly an addict of one kind or another. And then the camera cuts to an interview with the prince. And he says he's always loved her. That he loved her from the very beginning and that nothing would separate them. And then the cameras cut away to members of the public. And there's an uproar, right? This is a disgrace. It's a disgrace to the entire royal family. The prince should be stripped of his crown. He can't love a woman like that. And of course, in a sense, they're right. Because the prince to marry her, he's going to have to accept the shame and the disgrace that is connected with her. He has to be willing to associate himself with her. He has to be willing to pay a debt that she can't pay. He's going to have to pay a very high price. Not only that, but if she marries the prince, her legal status changes forever, doesn't it? She gets everything that belongs to him. All of his money is now credited to her account. All of the, the honor and the glories and the goodness and the prestige and the fame that comes with being a, a princess is now given to her. That is a picture of the doctrine of imputation. Christ has taken all of your filth, sinner, and he has given to you in exchange all of his righteousness. When Jesus says our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes, we are only able to do that if we first receive his righteousness as a gift. And because we have received this as a gift, we will live righteous lives, although imperfectly. But that's what's happened in Christ. If your faith is in Jesus, this is what Luther called the great exchange. God the Father, the moment you repent and believe in the gospel, God credits all your sin to Christ and says it's paid in full at the cross. And he credits all of Christ's righteousness to you. And he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you realize that you've been loved like that, Christian, you can begin to love like that. You can begin to love your enemies 
Because you trust if God the Father is willing to give you that, to give you the very righteousness of Christ, then why can't I trust him to take care of me even when my enemy mistreats me? Why can't I trust him and love even those who hate me? In just a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. The righteousness that we receive as a gift from Christ is part of what we remember every single time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But I want to talk to you something, just pastor to church. Before we take this, sometimes I fear, although there is a need for sobriety and and a need for self-examination and all of those things when we take the Lord's table. Sometimes I fear that we treat this meal more like uh, some sort of a funeral than the celebration that it should be. Sometimes I think we, we think that way because we think that, that Jesus is kind of like Johnny in the beginning of the sermon. You know, Johnny sat down on the outside with his body. He was willing to conform, but on the inside, he did it begrudgingly, right? His heart really wasn't in it. And some of us think that Jesus is like that. Sure, he'll, he'll be nailed to the cross, but he doesn't really want to do that for me. Sure, he's willing to have his beard plucked out and a crown of thorns on his head and his back lacerated, but he's doing it begrudgingly. Listen to me, that is not your Jesus. The scripture says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame. He endured the pain of the cross. He despised the shame of the cross. Why? For joy. And that joy is his people praising the Father. His heart is not detached, unloving towards you as he dies for you. His heart is overflowing with joy. So we take with joy, remembering that this is our Savior who loved us even while we were enemies. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Let me tell you, for those of you that are our guests this morning, how we celebrate the Lord's Supper here at Pocosin Baptist Church. First of all, we're going to have a Jesus and you moment as you pray silently and prepare your heart for communion. I would encourage you, if there is unconfessed sin in your heart, to confess it. But I would also encourage you to praise Jesus for loving you to let your heart be overflowing with the joy that he has in saving enemies. Rejoice in that. And then when you're ready, you'll be able to come at your convenience, so when you're ready, 
to any one of the tables or one of our pastors will be there to pray for you. We're going to invite you to the table in a, in a smaller group of maybe three to five. One of our pastors will pray for you and then you'll eat the bread in that small group of Christians around the table. And then you'll take your cup with you back to your seat and we'll have a, a Jesus and everybody moment as we take the cup together as a church family. But let me just remind you, like I do every time we do this, more important than how we celebrate communion is who. If you're in this room and you're a follower of Jesus, your task is to receive communion with joy. Yes, examine. Yes, confess. But receive it with joy. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we would plead with you, do not come to the table and take the bread and the cup. Come and receive Jesus. Maybe that even means coming to a table and asking a pastor to step aside and pray with you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But don't receive the symbol of Jesus' body and blood. Receive Christ himself. I'm going to ask you now, if you will, to bow your head and begin to prepare your heart. I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Cliff is going to come and, and play. And after I pray, you take as long as you need to come to a table and uh, we'll serve you. If you are here this morning and you are not comfortable for health reasons to come to a table, our, one of our deacons, Todd Holder, is towards the blue flag. Just hold your hand up and he'll bring you one of those disposable cups if you feel more comfortable with that. Let me pray for us and invite you to come when you're ready. Invite our elders to come as well. Jesus, we thank you. That for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross and despised the shame. You endured the pain, physical pain and inflicted on your body, the emotional pain of being falsely accused, spat upon, mistreated, hated. You endured it for joy. You despise the shame. The shame of my sin being credited to your account. The shame of every sinful thought, every sinful action, every sinful attitude, every good thing left undone, every wrong thing done, every good thing done with the wrong motive, you endured the shame of all of that being attributed to you and bearing on the cross the wrath of the Father for all of my shame. You did it for joy, for the joy that was set before you, the joy of the Father being praised by former enemies now adopted in the family of God. So help us to take the bread and the cup with joy. And Lord, I pray that as we meditate on your love for us when we were enemies, our hearts would overflow with love towards our own enemies. And God, if there's any in this room that remain in this moment an enemy of God, I pray that today they would run not from God, but to him. In Jesus' name, amen. You come when you're ready.